I'm Tracy Borman, and I love the Tudors Dynasty podcast. This is the Tudors Dynasty podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Rebecca Larson, and this is episode 102. Today's episode covers three different eras, Wars of the Roses, Catherine of Aragon, and Bess of Hardwick. Now, the Wars of the Roses, or the Cousins' Wars, were one of the most deadly and tumultuous times in English history, resulting in the death of many nobles. Today, Rachel Dixon and I talk about some of the key players of the time, Henry VI, Edward IV, the Kingmaker, and Richard Duke of York. We also discuss the women of the Wars of the Roses, including Elizabeth Woodville, Margaret Beaufort, and Margaret of Anjou. We take a look at the family tree of Edward III and how that affected history, and we also touch base on sanctuary and quick executions. Then, historian and author Heather Darcy joins us again for Ask the Expert. Today's topic is Catherine of Aragon and her family, and we ask Heather the questions you submitted on social media. You're really going to enjoy this one as Heather once again shatters our idea of what actually happened between the sheets with Catherine and Arthur Tudor. Lastly, Stephanie joins us again to share with you the story of the amazing Bess of Hardwick. You won't want to miss this episode. Listen in segments if you need to, but be sure to listen to it all. A quick shout out to Melissa H., Don L., and M. for becoming new patrons since the last episode, as well as a special thank you to Carolyn I. for switching to an annual pledge. Thank you so much, guys. Existing patrons and new ones like Melissa H. and Don L. and M. are eligible to win my monthly giveaways access to the tutor course as well, and so much more. All patrons in the month of November will receive a copy of the first three chapters of my loosely titled novel about Thomas Seymour. If you're interested, go to patreon.com slash tutorsdynasty and click become a patron for more options. And thank you for your support. All right, with that, let's get on with the show. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, you and I met, uh, gosh, I don't even remember how long ago it was, but I guess we were kind of introduced by a mutual friend, Heather Darcy, who is actually the guest on Ask the S Expert today after this. So we met through her and we both actually spoke at TudorCon in October. And I, of course, spoke about Thomas Seymour. Can you tell everybody what your topic was? Sure. I talked about uh, the effects of the Wars of the Roses on Tudor policy, um, which started with like a little overview of the Wars of the Roses and then talked about like all the lingering effects that had on Tudor's claims and the way that we they dealt with them, like propaganda and how it affected execution norms and ability to take sanctuary, etc. It affected so much. That's fantastic. And I think for most people who are listening, obviously, if you're listening to the show, you are a fan of the tutors. Um, but I believe that 
most people who are interested in the in the tutors have also maybe done a little bit of research into what happened before them. And that's what we're talking about today. And I would love it, Rachel, if you could help us kind of look at the key players involved in these conflicts a little bit, because my mind immediately goes to Henry VI, Edward IV, and the Kingmaker. Would you agree that those three were probably the biggest key players in the Wars of the Roses? Yes, they were some of the very big ones. Although I think I think the Earl of Warwick's influence is a little bit overstated these days. There's like some disputes about how important he really actually was to Edward IV's rise. Um, there's this whole like myth that has developed about like overmighty barons leading to the Wars of the Roses that like has actually been kind of like scholarly disputed over time. And I feel like the Kingmaker's mythos sort of wraps around that. But yes, I will actually answer your question straight. Um, yes, I think Henry VI and Edward IV are some of the most important people. And then Richard III, of course, um, in the later years. And there's some really important women uh, that played a lot of behind-the-scenes roles that uh, became extremely important as well. Now that you've mentioned the women, we might as well go into um, some of the amazing women behind the scenes. I mean, there were quite a few, and I want to name them all, but I'm not interviewing myself. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about the women behind the scenes and if if you can elaborate at all on maybe how they influenced any outcomes, that would be great too. Oh, yes. If you look at the first stage of the war when it basically Henry VI was a terrible king and people tried really hard to stay out of war for like 10 to 15 years and then eventually war just happened because he was that bad. A huge catalyst in that was also his queen, Margaret of Anjou, who um, was never the most popular of women because she was she was French. They had just gotten out of the Hundred Year War. And shortly after her marriage, England managed to lose lots of lands in France, which she kind of got blamed for. Um, she also was a very powerful woman who really like ran her husband's faction, got the Lancasters in order was much more politically influential than her husband in many ways, um, particularly after he had a catatonic uh, incident in which he just was out of it for over a year. It sounds like after that, he wasn't, Margaret was kind of running the ship in a lot of ways, um, even after he improved, because she was very intelligent, very savvy, and knew what to do to get people on her side and run things. She actually led armies at some points, Maybe not directly into battle, but she definitely was involved in tactical decisions and made alliances to get her son back on the throne after Henry VI was kicked off by Edward IV. And uh, so she was a very big, had a very big role at the beginning. Although um, there's been this sort of like mythos that's developed around her of being like this extremely violent person, like the she-wolf of France or whatever. Although I think that's often used to refer to an earlier queen. Um, that's not necessarily historically supported, but she was definitely very important and very influential in the early years. Another important woman is Elizabeth Woodville, who ended up marrying Edward IV. Uh, their marriage went against uh, Edward IV's allies, uh, ally the Earl of Warwick's intentions for Edward IV, which he had been working on figuring out a alliance with, I believe, some French princess with a marriage. And then Edward IV sort of popped, oh, hey, I'm already married on him. 
which wasn't ideal. And ultimately, Elizabeth Woodville's influential family, which was very large and required lots of titles and lands and everything, made Edward IV more unpopular and led to sort of the third stage of the war in which Warwick partnered with Edward's younger brother, George, to try to pull him off the throne. Uh, Not once, not twice, but two times. And then later in life, after her husband Edward IV died, Elizabeth was very influential in trying to get her sons on the throne and to safety. It's not really her fault. It totally failed. She had a huge family that, and she was like moving her brothers and sons around to negotiate situations for that. She made alliances with Margaret Beaufort, who I'll talk about in a second, to get Richard III off the throne and to get her daughter, um, Elizabeth of York, married to Margaret Beaufort's son, Henry Tudor. Um, she was really very influential. She did a lot. Her very existence caused a lot of problems for Edward IV, but she also was very savvy and acted on her own very well after his death. And then moving on to Margaret Beaufort, she was kind of like, I don't know, like a sleeping lioness a lot of the Wars of the Roses and then becomes really influential in like the last five years. But she was there the whole time, but ends up really coming into her own towards the end. Margaret Beaufort is the mother of Henry Tudor. And her marriage to Thomas, Lord Stanley, under the reign of Edward IV, ultimately led to the alliance that helped decide the Battle of Bosworth Field for Henry Tudor over Richard III. She um, negotiated with Elizabeth Woodville, as I mentioned. She was involved in the Duke of Buckingham's revolt against Richard III. And then when her son was on the throne as Henry VII, she was very politically influential in helping keep him on the throne and make alliances and ensure peace in the country. So, yeah, those three women, I would I would say, are all a very big deal. There were others, of course, but they were some of the, the standouts at the very highest level. Oh, most definitely. Def- you know, and then later on, of course, then we get the Anne Neville into the mix and people love her as well. But I was wondering my first introduction um, to the Wars of the Roses to Elizabeth Woodville uh, was, and people are going to hate me for saying this, but it was through uh, Philippa Gregory's books, the white queen. Um, that was probably, I think that was the first of her books that I ever read. And it really made me fall in love with the characters. And of course, Afterward, I started doing some research to find out the truth, but I think it's it's interesting how she portrayed the different women. Do you did you read that book or, or watch the series? Yes. So okay. I. Yeah. <laughs> I'm um, curious, real quick. Do you think her portrayal of Margaret of Anjou was fair? <laughs> That's a complicated one. So I should say I love Philippa Gregory. I think people need to realize that she's a fiction writer. People hate on her all the time. And I'm like, come on, y'all. She gets people into the history and then they find out what, what's real and what isn't. Um, but I think the Wars of the Roses books are very well done. The legends that she has in there are ones that have some historical basis, at least. Like, yeah, George Duke of Clarence wasn't drowned in a bottle of Momsy wine. Bottle. Barrel. Of Malmsey wine. It would be very hard to be drowned in a bottle of Malmsey wine. But <laughs> there's there have been rumors about that for centuries. So it's it's a fun thing to throw in there, even if we know how it happened. And her portrayal of Margaret of Anjou in, I believe she mostly pops up in The Kingmaker's Daughter and in the prequel to The White Queen, uh, Lady of the Rivers, is really interesting and fascinating. 
And it's hard to know because like we have so many more primary sources from the Tudor era than we do from the War of the Roses era. So it's a little hard to know. But everything I've read does indicate people were super impressed with Margaret of Anjou. They knew she was a huge power. They knew she was intelligent and smart. And like she went back and forth between France and England twice. No, three times. Like once for the marriage and then twice later to try to get her husband back up from. So she was clearly a force to be reckoned with. I don't necessarily think she was the she the portrayal of her as like, here, seven-year-old child, do you want to kill these men who've been protecting your father during this battle? Like that sort of vengeance thing. I don't think that's really supported in history. But the basic outlines of her seem to be accurate. And the we do know that both Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou were played favorites to an insane level. So I feel like the portrayals of how that happened in Philippa Gregory books actually make a lot of sense. I feel like people who don't like what she does, they say that they don't like it because of those who read it or watch it and don't do the research. And I'm kind of in the same boat as you when it comes to Philippa Gregory, that people have become interested in this time period because of it. And I kind of take it as my responsibility to help give them the facts or give them the tools that they need to be able to find the facts. I completely agree. Um, It's a wonderful series. It is. Yeah. And honestly, some books are done a lot better than others. Like Mm -hmm. I have a lot more issues with her portrayal of Margaret Beaufort than I do with a lot of the other ones. Like, um, she portrays Margaret Beaufort as very scheming, very arrogant, very evil mother-in-law from the beginning. And I just, that doesn't seem to be supported by all the stories and primary sources we've read. But yeah, I mean, I feel like her portrayals of Elizabeth Woodville and Margaret of Anjou make more sense to me. They seem to align a lot better with the primary sources. The evil stepmother thing of Margaret Beaufort just, I don't know where that came from. It doesn't seem to be supported at all. Somebody has to be the villain. Yeah, I guess. And if you're not willing to make Richard III a villain, you got to make someone the villain. And it is more fun if your villain is your main character. So, (laughs) You brought up Richard III. Usually we don't talk about Richard III unless Matthew Lewis is on the show. So... (laughs) This is this is new. Uh, so you you mentioned Richard the um, Third, and you briefly mentioned the three brothers earlier. So we had Edward the Fourth, we had his brother George, um, Duke of Clarence, and then we had um, Richard, Duke of Gloucester. Uh, so we have the three of those. Edward becomes king. The three of them, of course, after fighting all of these battles together, they seem pretty close as far as siblings go. And everything kind of seemed to shift a little bit, would you say, after it was revealed that Edward married Elizabeth Woodville? I think it's hard to tell. I will say, I mean, the the portrayals in the Philippa Gregory book of the Sons of York and the, the TV series are a little inaccurate because I don't I don't have this number off the top of my head, but I believe that Edward was a solid 10 years older than um, Richard and Edward came to the throne when he was 18. So they may have fought in battles later in their life, but uh, they definitely weren't like fighting side by side at the beginning. Um, George and Richard were both children in the early stages of the war. 
and frankly, even Edward was like um, for a lot of that. So, I mean, it does seem like I think when he married Edward the four, sorry, I think when Edward married Elizabeth Woodville, fourteen sixty four, um, they were only just getting to be teenagers, Richard and George. So, I'm sure there was a closeness there, but it's it's been it's been heavily exaggerated in many popular portrayals. Uh, it does appear that, like, I mean, the uh, the factions that developed at Edward the Fourth's court and the angers of many nobles towards the Woodvilles is like legendary. And it's clear that George and Richard both had their issues with the Woodvilles, but it's hard to tell if that, I, that probably developed over time as they aged. Um, Cause at the very beginning, their marriage, they just were not, I mean, they were so young. Sorry. I'm trying to pull up these figures real quick. Yeah. George was 15 when Edward got married to Elizabeth Woodville. Um, and Edward had been on the throne since. George was 12 and Richard was a couple years younger. So yeah, um, they definitely were closer later in life, but uh, the Philippa Gregory sons of York from the very beginning thing definitely, definitely is, is invented at that point because they weren't, they weren't fighting in battles when they were 12. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I mean, there's signs that they weren't even in England for some of the battles that later pop culture decrypt like descriptions that they were including Shakespeare like it's not just Philippa Gregory Shakespeare exaggerated a ton of stuff too you know I keep coming back to the beginning and I don't know if there's a set date when the Wars of the Roses began but I've always wondered if if it was Henry the Sixth's ineffectiveness as king that led to the beginning of the wars Henry the Sixth became king at nine months old his reign pretty well until he actually like was put in charge of things. And then it kind of all went very badly because he wasn't a very good king. He was super pious and super pacifist, but he also played favorites a lot. He lost like all the land in France that his dad had just won in the miraculous Battle of Agincourt, which would be legendary for centuries and centuries and remains legendary. And he managed to spend way too much money, didn't manage his finance as well. I mean, the first battle of the Wars of the Roses is generally put in 1455, but things had gotten so bad under him that as early as 1450, people were revolting and lynching his chief advisors because they were so angry at his mismanagement and how badly everything was going. And then the, the second battle of the Wars of the Roses didn't really, like there were a couple skirmishes, but the second battle really didn't happen until 1460. So if you look at the first stage, it seems to kind of indicate that people were really doing everything they could not to go to war because they had just fought for like a hundred years in France and they didn't want to do that. But Henry VI was so bad at his job that like it, it sort of had to happen eventually. And then at some point, Richard Duke of York enters. Yes. So Richard Duke of York, I believe he was actually 10 years older than Henry VI. So he'd been around for quite some time. He'd fought a lot in France. He was lieutenant of Ireland for a while. And it seemed like he even was trying to stay out of politics for a long time until Henry became such a bad king that he kind of really needed to put himself out there because as the heir presumptive to the throne, he felt it was his, you know, duty to like try to fix this situation. Even though he was the like highest ranking noble in the country after Henry and was very well respected and very powerful, well connected. 
um, Henry continually refused to recognize Richard as his heir. He excluded him from his council. He didn't take advice from him. He basically um, did everything he could not to recognize him as his heir or have anything to do with him. There was one incident where, like, Parliament, a member of Parliament stood up and proposed that Henry VI make Richard, Duke of York, his heir. And Henry was so annoyed about it that he put the guy in prison and then dissolved Parliament entirely. So there was some serious bad blood there. I don't know the story. I kind of wish I did. Richard Duke York kind of stepped up when Henry VI became very sick and could not function. He was protector of the realm for, I think it was about a year, um, and did what he could to like rule through a broad council from various different factions, not just his personal friends, which gained him a lot of you know, favor at the time because people were like, oh, he really is trying. He also imprisoned some of Henry's favorite nobles who everyone else thought was incompetent, which didn't make him friends when Henry got better. But yeah, like he, he felt that was the right thing to do for the country. Um, when Henry got better and Richard resigned his job as Lord Protector, he basically knew he was going to get punished for imprisoning his the king's friends while Protector and basically formed an army almost immediately. The king had kind of formed an army to go after him anyway. And they basically kind of just like glared at each other over a field and like sent a bunch of notes back and forth until one of them finally attacked the other. It ended up being Duke of York attacking the king first, but not by much. Like they were both on the edge. So that was the first battle of the war. And then there wasn't even another battle for like five more years because people were still trying so hard to make this peace thing work. So we were talking about Richard Duke of York, who was, was he the son of Edward III? The descendants. No. Um, yeah, they were all descendants of Edward III in various ways. It's honestly complicated enough that if I can talk through it, but I would advise your listeners to look at a family tree because it is complicated. <laughs> I, I just pulled one up because I knew I was going to get confused by this, but I've always believed that the fact that Edward III had so many sons, that that was a contributing factor to the Wars of the Roses. Well, now it probably didn't help. <laughs> like, you always want an heir and a spare, and then you stop. You don't want any more. Um, but, like, no, Edward III had to keep having more children. Um, and then all those children had to have many more children, including some that weren't quite legitimate, which causes even more fun. Okay, so Henry VI got his his claim to the throne through the third son of Edward III, John of Gaunt, and that's all a completely male legitimate line. Edward IV's claim, and thus his father Richard, Duke of York's claim as well, came through the second son of Edward III, but it came through a female line, like uh, Edward III's granddaughter is how they get the descent, which um, Edward III at one point actually entailed the descent of the throne only to his male heirs, which was very standard at the time. So even though Edward was from the second son and Henry was through the third son, Henry's claim was considered better because all male versus there's a, there's a woman in there. Oh, no. Heaven forbid. And... Then when we get to Henry Henry VII, his claim actually derives from John of Gaunt as well, but through his, like, mistress's sons, who were later legitimized and blocked from the throne by Henry IV, although 
really questionable whether Henry IV actually had the legal authority to do that. But yeah, so you're, you're kind of all over the board when it comes to the different figures and how they come in here. And a lot of the people on the map, like, th- there are so many other important people on here that we don't even have time to talk about because they're just so many children. Like, stop having kids, Edward III. This isn't helpful. Their family tree, the only way I can describe I'm looking at it and my eyes are going cross, but it's more of a, like a family bush. <laughs> There's so many intertwining branches, and it can be overwhelming to anybody. It's true. I will say one really cool thing about the Wars of the Roses is it did kind of get rid of that whole idea of you have to be through a completely male line to have a claim to the throne entirely, because the York claim and the Tudor claim both came through a female line, and it basically never became an issue again because they're like, well... We don't have any male line purists left, so let's just go with the women, which I I feel like that change in approaches and acceptance of that sort of thing ultimately led to, like, acceptance of, like, Jane Grey, Mary I, Elizabeth I, and females being in power in royal circles. I mean, this is all part of my theory. I think the Wars of the Roses led to a lot of women coming into power because just so many nobles were killed off during the conflicts that... They were the only options left, which I think is a great thing. Yeah, it, we definitely see that more in the later centuries. Um, but one thing that we didn't touch on looking at the family tree was Edward the Black Prince and his son, Richard II. Uh, yes. I will say I above Richard II, my, my knowledge gets very hazy. I know Richard II okay, but uh, uh, I can't tell you much about the Black Prince. Sorry, except that he died early. I I should really know a lot more than that. Um, but uh, yeah, Richard II is fascinating. I mean, his um, Richard II getting kicked off the throne by Henry IV ultimately made the precedent for Richard, Duke of York, and his son Edward kicking Henry VI off the throne. Like, um, it's it's actually really fascinating if you look how many similarities are between Richard II and Henry IV. They're both sons of legendary, like legendary princes and warriors um, who inherit as children, who um, end up like there's so many similarities. I was like taking notes on this earlier. They don't particularly care for war. They have pretty unpopular marriages. They play favorites with lords who weren't necessarily good at their jobs or like qualified. They're both famously indecisive. Um, Richard II was a bit more petty than Henry VI, from what I can tell. Um, both were usurped from the throne and died in the custody of their rivals and were likely murdered. So there's so many similarities and both of them were just such bad kings in so many ways. <laughs> but it, it's it's fascinating to look and see that precedent. I, it's always fascinating when you look at Richard II and Henry IV because they were cousins Mm-hmm. And and yet and yet Henry the Fourth or Henry Bolingbroke at the time had no problem having his cousin deposed and stepping in his shoes. It always makes me wonder, like, where did he get that? I, I want to say arrogance. Where did he get that arrogance from to be like, okay, nope, now it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> I want that. I want that kind of confidence. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because things had kind of 
things were bad for like a lot. Like I feel like the point at which everyone had decided that the king was a very bad king and should probably stop being a bad king lasted a lot longer with Henry the sixth than it did with Richard the second. But people, people weren't, this is not my area of expertise. I should make all sorts of qualifications on that. But from what I can tell, people weren't super annoyed or bothered by Richard the second losing the throne. While People had a really big issue with the idea of Henry VI losing the throne. Um, like the Duke of York tried to claim it in 1460, and people were all like, whoa, 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 let's not do that. Um, and it took, like, the Duke of York dying and a huge propaganda campaign and some very good PR work by both Edward IV and the Earl of Warwick to actually get the people to accept a new king replacing Henry VI. I really want to look into this more and look at the differences that led to that. That is very yeah. interesting. That whole time period to me, I think people forget that, you know, the Tudors are full of drama, but man, the Plantagenets, I mean, they ruled for over 300 years. They have some amazing stories that, aren't being told because the Tudors are overshadowing them by, you know, Henry VIII and executing two of his wives seems to overshadow the 300 years of the Plantagenets. Oh, gosh. Yeah, no. Like, I mean, I would love to see more movies about, like, Isabella of France, who overthrew her husband with the help of her lover. Or, like, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who supported her sons in a revolt against their father. Like, there were so many interesting things that happened there. Um, as much as I love Henry VIII, well, love to hate Henry VIII, you know, it's one of those complicated feeling situations. I would love to see more about the Plantagenets because they are fascinating. One of the things that I just thought of was studying the Tudors. We hear about executions, but we don't hear about sanctuary as often as we did with the Wars of the Roses. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we heard about people claiming sanctuary more um, during the Wars of the Roses than with the Tudors? Ooh, oh, this one's really interesting. I, I, this is part of my, like, I looked into this a lot for my TudorCon talk. So, okay, so at the beginning of the Wars of the Roses, like, a person claiming sanctuary in the church could stay there for, like, 40 days, theoretically, but at that point it was really kind of, like, indefinitely. Um, and there were specific rules around it. People used sanctuary several times during the Wars of the Roses, like Elizabeth Woodville relied on it. But over the course of the Wars of the Roses, with like a general like decline in what's even the word? Um, I'm not certain what the word I'm looking for is there, but people started breaking sanctuary a lot in uh, the Wars of the Roses. Like uh, Edward IV had numerous Lancaster nobles removed from Tewkesbury Abbey in 1471. Um, Henry VII respected sanctuary at first, but after some nobles went into sanctuary after Henry VII took the throne, then came out, tried to toss him off the throne, failed, and went back into sanctuary, he went and dragged them out. So there was, like, specific decline in, like, social mores when it comes to sanctuary at that point. Um, under Henry VII, he actually instituted legal reforms that, like, prevented a felon from invoking sanctuary when the crime involved was treason or suspicion of treason, and also put in place, like, if any sanctuary person leaves sanctuary and causes, quote, mischief, they can't go back into sanctuary. 
And then Henry VIII eliminated those rights even more and, you know, closed a lot of the monasteries. So although the right of sanctuary wasn't completely legally dissolved until like 1624, you really don't hear about it because they're just, it was so much more limited than it used to be. And so many of the monasteries were operating, like were closed down and sold off as estates and homes. So there were just availability of space to hang out and had just gone down. They also seem to um, execute people on the spot, which is something we didn't really see with Henry VIII. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, there were several, I mean, famous instances of people getting executed on the spot in the Wars of the Roses. So we're looking at like um, when the Earl of Warwick rebelled like the first time he executed like the Earl Rivers and John Woodville. So respectively, like the father and the son of Elizabeth Woodville. Um, he had like a show trial, but they were beheaded really quickly. Um, the other really big names that come up with this sort of thing was Anthony Woodville and Sir Richard Gray, both also Woodville family members beheaded by Richard III, um, even though there was really no shine that they'd done anything wrong. And then you have like Lord Hastings, who was beheaded by Richard III, very quickly, without much explanation. Those are all, I mean, they were all very hasty on the spot, but they were in, like, a time of, like, intense conflict. And they were all kind of, like, they were nobles, but they were sort of lower-level nobles. I have a theory about this, that, like, it felt a little more okay to, like, sort of abruptly kill, like, a Woodville from that faction you don't really like, whose, like, biggest claim is that their um one of their members is the queen than it is to go after like someone of like royal blood or like intense noble blood you do have the duke of buckingham who was convicted of treason and beheaded pretty quickly thereafter but like he clearly was guilty like he was leading a rebellion like there was all sorts of evidence so i feel like that falls into a different like category the thing is henry the eighth like there were different he he i feel like henry the eighth prided himself on being a just guy, even if he wasn't really. And, like, always gave people trials to, like, make himself look like the good guy because he had this need for everyone to love him and accept him and think he was the best guy ever. So I feel like a lot of his choices led to that. Although, okay, I can't remember their names, but he did pretty abruptly execute a couple of his father's courtiers um, very early on in his reign. Um, mm. Basically, yeah. I should remember their name. I really Edmund, don't. Edmund uh, Dudley and, yes. um, oh, my gosh, Edmund. <laughs> oh, I knew there was a Dudley in there somewhere. Like, I can't like, I can't remember the other one now. It's going to drive me crazy. Uh, Empson. Yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, he, he executed them pretty quickly on trumped-up charges of treason. But, yeah, I'm trying to think of – you may have a point. I hadn't really thought about that. But, yeah, Henry VIII really didn't – he executed a lot of people, but, like, usually after letting them chill in the Tower of London for many months or years at a time. I mean, Anne Boleyn may have been one of his faster ones, actually, and she was in for a couple months. Um, hmm, that's fascinating. I hadn't really thought of that. But, I, yeah, I mean, my theory would basically be that, like, Henry VIII thought he was a lot better of a guy than he actually was and really wanted to demonstrate that by giving people trials, even if they were completely stacked against them. Even though they were a sham. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what do you think 
Henry VII learned, if anything, from the Wars of the Roses? I mean, he kind of learned never to trust anyone ever, which seemed to be something he did his whole life. I mean, you didn't really have the factions under the court of Henry VII that you saw under Henry VI or Edward IV or even Richard III to an extent. Um, He, yeah, it felt like he wasn't really big on favoring specific families. He definitely decreased the number of gifts he was giving people. Um, I feel like he learned that probably from Henry VI's example. Um, Like he kept all that stuff to himself. He kept the royal, uh, the royal finances within his control, which meant that, you know, the, uh, the crown could actually support itself, um, which was then gleefully undone by his son. But that's a whole other story. Um, Yeah. And I mean, I I feel like, yeah, basically those two big things was like learning, like keeping finances to himself and not really trusting other people. Um, And he certainly elevated a lot of like lower level non-nobles into the bureaucracy, um, which had started to become a thing under Edward IV. But I feel like Henry VII took it to a new level of like creating a non-noble bureaucracy that was good at it administering things well thank you so much for chatting with us about the wars of the roses and now we came to the if i made you choose part of the show oh no (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if you've heard this before but i try to change these up um every time i do the show so that it's more specific to your subject are you ready sure henry the sixth or richard duke of york richard duke of york All right, the next one is the Kingmaker, also known as the Earl of Warwick, or Thomas Cromwell. Thomas Cromwell. And the next one is Elizabeth Woodville or Anne Boleyn. Oh, that's hard. Mm. I think I'd... Elizabeth Woodville. Okay, now the last one, which is my favorite one, Edward Seymour or Thomas Seymour? (laughs) Edward, I'm sorry. (laughs) I know you like Thomas, but uh, I like Edward Seymour a lot better than Thomas. You better have a good reason for this one. I really like dogs, Rebecca. What can I say? (laughs) No, you didn't. (laughs) I'm sorry. Um. But no, I feel like my reason, my real reasoning that isn't just mess, aimed at messing with you is uh, I feel like Edward Seymour was better at playing the game and controlling his temper and feelings and thoughts. And Thomas was a lot more impetuous and feeling all his feelings at once. And I feel like if you're in Tudor England, you really got to keep a hold on yourself if you want to stay alive. I mean, it didn't work out very well for Edward either, but, you know, you get my point. (laughs) Poor Thomas. (laughs) Oh, Rachel, thank you so much for being on the show today and chatting with us. And I had a great time talking to you. If anybody wants to follow you or see any of your stuff, where can they do that? Sure. Um, My website is racheldixon.com, and that's Rachel, R-A-C-H-A-E-L. Dixon, D-I-C-K-Z-E-N.com. And I'm also on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, all under 
some variation of Rachel Dixon, D-I-C-K-Z-E-N. No one else has that last name. I found if you just search that, you can pretty much find me. And now, Ask the Expert. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ask the Expert. I'm Steph Soar, and I'm here today with historian and author Heather Darcy. You might know her because she's actually an expert on Anna of Cleves. But today she's here to chat about Catherine of Aragon. Welcome, Heather. Hi. We're going to start off with Catra from Wyoming in the U.S. What do you think that Catherine of Aragon's relationship was like with her sisters? I think that Catherine of Aragon respected her sister Juana quite a bit, if only because Juana wound up being the heir to the crowns of Aragon, Castile, and Leon. As far as her other sisters are concerned, Catherine was one of the younger children, and so I think that her other sisters either passed away or had married off before she really had a good opportunity to get to know them. I'm not 100% certain about that, if only because I haven't really looked into the lives of her sisters or what correspondence she may have maintained with them. But Juana of Castile is mentioned quite a bit during her lifetime, of course, when Catherine was living in limbo between her marriages to Arthur Tudor and the future Henry VIII. There was a period of time where Henry VII actually considered marrying Juana of Castile, so that helps us have a better idea of how Catherine felt about Juana. Ultimately, there's no declaration of her feelings of which I'm aware. That's not to say that there aren't any surviving letters or anything like that. I just haven't dived into it that far. But I do think that she probably, like I said before, respected her sister for being the heir to all of the, the kingdom, kingdoms and effectively unifying Spain under one crown. Unfortunately, Juana was thrown into a monastery or an abbey. I can't remember which off the top of my head. I feel like it's a monastery. But she was thrown into a monastery by her son, Charles I of Spain, who later became Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. So she was the monarch her whole life, and she didn't die until, I believe, after Charles V died or right around the time that he died. So she lived for quite some time, but he de facto ruled the kingdom of Spain. And so I think that Catherine probably had a great deal of pity for her sister, was anxious about her sister or what had happened to her sister. And I think that that's manifested later on when Henry VIII tries to have his marriage to Catherine annulled and remove Mary from the succession. And at one point, if I remember correctly, it's suggested to Catherine that she goes to a nunnery, which that's exactly what happened to her sister, Juana. So you mentioned that Catherine was actually younger than her other siblings. That's a nice segue into our question here from Andrea on Twitter. What was her her upbringing actually like uh, with her siblings, with her parents? Because some accounts claim that it was pretty rigid and disciplined, but you could also find some sources that say it was loving. Did your research prove either of those two theories? I think ultimately it comes down to cultural differences. So we see the same sort of... I guess, rhetoric surrounding how Anna of Cleves was raised and that she's raised in this super strict environment and the Falsima and that she was never far from her mother's elbow and she was sheltered and she was this and that and she didn't learn anything worth learning. And none of that's true. She, Yes, she was raised in the Falsima, but that was common of every German noblewoman. It wasn't like, like, excuse me, Anna was raised in some sort of really strict, weird upbringing. And all the women of court spent time in the Falsima, and they weren't completely isolated from the rest of the court, just that that's where they spent most of their day. And also, Anna learned a lot of practical skills rather than learning things like how to play music and how to sing. Um, concerning Catherine of Aragon, she was instructed, I believe, in history and languages. There was a man who became a 
bishop, but he was the official tutor for the daughters of Isabella and Ferdinand, so she learned from him. She would have learned Latin, and she did correspond with Arthur Tudor for, I think it was about two years before they met in person in Latin, and they tried to converse in Latin the first time they met each other, but unfortunately, they both learned different dialects of Latin, and so they couldn't actually directly communicate with each other, and they needed to make use of translators at their first meeting to translate their Latin back and forth, or perhaps Spanish to English, I'm not sure, but, so that's kind of funny, that they could read each other's thoughts, but, thoughts on paper, but that they couldn't actually understand each other in person. Um, Beyond that, she seems to have had more of a humanist upbringing, so similar to what a young lady in England would have had. Additionally, I think that she would have been introduced to diplomacy or perhaps military strategy. Her mother, Isabella, certainly had training in that. Yeah, so it was, I'd say that her education might have been, or an upbringing might have been a bit closer to what we see in England, but we still have to keep in mind that just because an upbringing in a different country is different. That doesn't make it strict or severe. It's just those are the traditions of that country. Thank you for that. And Keith on Twitter actually wanted to know, now was Catherine a Spanish princess or was she considered an infanta? She was an infanta. She was an infanta of Aragon and Castile. So her title was officially Catalina de Aragon y Castilla. I'm sorry, my Spanish pronunciation is not as good as my German pronunciation. But yes, so she was, in fact, an infanta of Spain. Now, jumping ahead to the years between her marriages to Arthur and Henry, Matt from Pennsylvania in the U.S. was wondering, what was her life like in between those two marriages um, while she was essentially in limbo? She was definitely in limbo. Catherine very much functioned as an intermediary between her parents and Henry VII. She, at one point, did become impoverished. But the curious thing about that, when you look at the letters that she sends home and the letters that the Spanish officials or ambassadors send home to Spain, it's kind of hard to tell if she was actually impoverished or if she was being influenced harshly or in a negative way, I guess harshly is the wrong way to say it, but in a negative way by this friar. So at one point she needed a new confessor in her house and she wanted one from Spain and her dad and I believe her mother were not very quick in supplying one. So she managed to find one on her own and hired this person, had him come and live in her house and reports back to Spain were that this guy was giving Catherine a bad reputation. And around the same time you see Catherine writing letters to her father saying, Hey, I need you to send me money. I've been selling my plate and my jewels, which is part of my dowry, and I know I'm not supposed to do that, but I'm out of money and I have to dress in rags. We have to keep in mind that at this point, Catherine is a teenager, and so how much of that is her actually being reduced to poverty, which I would certainly believe because Henry VII was a miser and Catherine wasn't very useful to her parents if she was away in England instead of being home in Spain. But we we have to think about or at least consider that some of her expenditures might have been frivolous or at least unnecessary, because to me there's a distinction between those words, because she was a teenager and also she was being influenced heavily by this friar. And the guy convinced her to behave rather poorly towards Henry VII as well. There was a day when she was supposed to meet with Princess Mary, so Henry VIII's sister, and go with Princess Mary to visit Henry VII at the Palace of Richmond, And Mary shows up with her entourage, and the friar said, no, Catherine, you shouldn't go. You threw up last night. You can't go. And Catherine felt well. And she's like, no, I I should be fine. He said, no, you really shouldn't go. So Catherine leaves Princess Mary to wait 
for two hours before she finally goes out and says, hey, I'm not going today. So then Mary gets to Richmond. Henry VII is ticked off. And Catherine is not invited the next day because she just assumed that's how things would play out. So she finally goes for a brief period of time the following day, so on the third day. But there were instances like that, or at least that's a direct recorded incident of Catherine's poor, discourteous behavior, at least towards Henry VII. And this is all going on at the same time that she's saying that she's poor and that she needs more money and so on and so forth. Thank you. Okay, so moving on to when they actually did get married. Our host, Rebecca Larson, would like to know how much influence did Catherine actually have over Henry in the earlier years of their marriage? So she was pro-Spanish during the early years of their marriage. In 1513, there was some conflict between Ferdinand, her father, and Henry VIII, her husband, and she still was pro-Spanish, but I think she just kind of dialed it back a little bit. But at the very, very beginning of their marriage, the two of them were very much engaged in frivolities, and I don't know how much of that was them being, Henry being 18 or 19 and Catherine being in her early 20s, and them just acting like, you know, teenagers and people in their 20s who suddenly have all this money, versus Henry wanting to take care of Catherine and trying to show her a good time, or if that was Catherine perhaps carrying on a pattern that she had established in England of spending more money than she could bring in and rubbing off on Henry. I'm just not sure about that. But she did maintain a strong tie with Spain and certainly tried to bring that to Henry's attention whenever she could. And now Dee on Twitter actually wants to know if you can clarify the rumors about Catherine's pregnancies. So how many times was she pregnant? How many um, miscarriages versus stillbirths did she have? Um, We know that she was not able to produce a male heir for Henry, but it's still unclear as far as what her pregnancies looked like, the babies that were born, et cetera. So ultimately, even today, I think it's impossible to really know how many miscarriages a woman has because it's common enough, once again, even today, that a woman could have could have a miscarriage and she's only one or two months gestation. And so in order for Catherine to announce that she was pregnant, she had to be pretty darn sure that she was pregnant. So as far as just out-and-out miscarriages, there's really only one that we know of for sure. And that was her first child. She had announced in, I believe it was summer of 1509, that she was pregnant. And she delivered a, a an early preterm girl in late January of 1510. At the time, she was told that she was pregnant with twins because she had some sort of infection or inflammation in her uterus. And so she appeared pregnant for longer than she should have. And if, eventually that went away and it was apparent that she wasn't pregnant with twins and that she had just miscarried one, which is something that is also common. Like that happens too. That's not a weird thing to have happen. But after that, she became pregnant or she knew she was pregnant by May of 1510. And then on January 1st of 1511, she gave birth to Henry, Duke of Cornwall, and he lived for about a month and a half after he died. So, so far we have two documented pregnancies. Right. In early 1513, she was pregnant again. And then in June of that year, Catherine, who was four or five months along, was made regent of England while Henry was off fighting wars in France. And then after the Battle of Flodden in September of that year, she went into premature birth or premature labor, excuse me, and she had a baby boy. So she would have been at about seven or eight months gestation when she gave birth to that baby boy. And he did not survive because he was born too early. Um, 
1514, there was a, another pregnancy. Later that year, she gave birth to a boy who was alive, and then he passed away, so he was born alive. And then, of course, she had Mary I in February of 1516, and Mary was alive and healthy, and she lived to adulthood. And then the sixth child, which was born again in November of 1518, she seems to like to have babies in the fall or in the cold months. But anyway, she had a baby in November of 1518, and it was a daughter. Catherine was about eight. Daughter was born alive week and she survived for a very short period of time before dying so out of Catherine's six known pregnancies only one of them resulted in what I would consider a genuine miscarriage and that was the first one when she was only about five months along the other ones the children all appeared to be seven or eight or nine months along so that's more in my opinion that's more of a birth because it's in the third trimester it's just that with medicine the way it was or the lack of medicine mm-hmm. the the chances of survival for any preterm baby were very, very slim. And they certainly didn't have the medical miracles that we do these days where you could have a baby at 25 weeks gestation. And yeah, it's going to have a really hard time, but there are high, high enough chances of its survival. I mean, if you had a baby at five months gestation, even a hundred years ago, it was pretty much going to die. So out of her six known pregnancies, only one of them was a genuine miscarriage that we're aware of. And none of her children, again, we're excluding that miscarriage of the first child. None of her children were stillborn. They were all born alive. They were just weak and died shortly after birth, except for Mary the first. So do you think that she had um, some underlying medical conditions? We actually have two similar questions, Mary Beth in California and Gretchen in Washington, who both kind of wanted to know the same thing. Um, Do you think that she had some medical condition that would have contributed to her having such a hard time um, giving birth to healthy children. Uh, Mary Beth actually brought up possibly having RH negative blood, or do you think there were some other contributing factors too? I have a couple thoughts. So first of all, I think it's very dangerous to try and diagnose dead people that have been dead for hundreds of years with a medical condition because we can't do it. And unless you're going to exhume the body and see if there's significant DNA or things that would be altered or influenced by a disease, we just can't know. Considering the concerning the RH factor, so my understanding of the RH factors is that if the father and the mother have different RH factors, if the mother becomes pregnant, the first child she has, if the RH factor is different from hers, she'll be able to have a safe birth, the baby will be fine, but then any subsequent births, because of things that happen during the birth and like blood getting in the mother's the baby's blood getting in the mother's own bloodstream, the body will self-abort, if you will, or miscarry any subsequent children. And so it's incredibly difficult to have, to have a child after that. What we have to keep in mind, though, is Catherine had five children that were live births that were seven, eight, nine months gestation. It's just that the children themselves were incredibly weak and died. And that has nothing to do, as far as I'm aware, and I'm not a doctor, so don't quote me, but as far as I'm aware... That's too far along to be considered a complication from incompatible RH factors. What we do know and what's recorded is that in 1510, so around the time Catherine became pregnant with her second child, she was not eating enough. So there is a dispatch from a a Spanish official or ambassador to Ferdinand saying, hey, Catherine's not eating enough. She has irregular periods. She has them infrequently. And we're really worried about whether or not she's going to be able to conceive a child. It's also known that Catherine was very, very devout and very pious. And she firmly 
observed any feasting periods that were called for by the Catholic Church or if there was a reason, a a religious reason for her to fast, she would do it regardless of whether she was pregnant. And so what seems more likely and what we do have documented evidence of is that Catherine did not eat enough when she was pregnant or at least at times when she was supposed to become pregnant, she did not eat enough. I'm not saying she's anorexic or anything like that, but there was a serious issue with her getting proper nutrition into her body, which in the 16th century was already difficult enough to get proper nutrition to a person's body, but combine that with not eating enough, and she would she didn't seem to have trouble conceiving, but the babies weren't receiving, potentially were not receiving the nourishment that they needed to survive birth and to, to be alive basically for the first few days, um, and, and then they died. And so I think that was more Catherine's dietary habits, if you will, that probably led to it than any mystery disease that Henry may or may not have had. Isn't that so interesting that if she had only known to take care of herself a little more, the entire course of British royal history could have completely been changed? Yeah, and some of it, too. So when I think of Henry, Duke of Cornwall, we don't know exactly why he died. He could have even died from sudden infant death syndrome. I have no idea. They didn't know what that was back then. I think they might have had crib death or a term like that, but... We don't know why he died, but he was healthy, too. He could have just been, like so many babies today, a victim of a natural condition that's not necessarily a defect or anything. It's just sometimes babies don't make it, unfortunately. But, yeah, it's really interesting to think about if she would have known she could have possibly had a greater success in having more adult children. And do you think that she could have been, because we all know now that, Henry wanted a male heir, regardless of having Mary been healthy, um, a healthy adult. So the morphing artist on Instagram wanted to know, could could Catherine of Aragon have been Henry's real favorite wife in terms of affection and understanding had it not been for his quest for a male heir? Yeah, I think so. I think that we have to keep in mind that he was married to her for longer than any of the other wives combined, I believe. They They were together for officially together for what 24 years or darn near 24 years and yeah i think that ultimately the breakdown of their marriage came down to cultural differences and what i mean by that is so we have to keep in mind that catherine's mother isabella was queen in her own right of castile and leon and then catherine's sister juana was queen of castile leon and aragon so effectively spain And that was normal. It was very normal for there to be queens in Castile and Leon. So that was not a strange thing. And there were no laws in England prohibiting a a woman from inheriting the crown and becoming a queen regnant or ruling in her own right. And so I think to Catherine, Henry's obsession with a male heir might have seemed a bit, I'm going to say silly. I don't know if that's the right word, but that's the, the word we're going with right now. But might have seemed a bit silly or a bit out of turn because to Catherine, you know, my mom and my sister are queens. We have Mary. She's fine. Why can't she be queen? And Henry's like, no, we need a boy. So I think that that's probably what led to the to the breakdown of the marriage. But I do think that she could have been his true love because she certainly appeared to respect him. She did her best to turn a blind eye to his little liaisons with other women and she stood by him and that's, that's what she was supposed to do. She was loved by the people and that's really what her main duties were as queen. I think she carried them out pretty well. She did. And she's actually portrayed as so steadfast in her beliefs and 
she stood by him for so long, which actually brings me to my question for you. Um, she was so, I don't want to say stubborn, but stubborn uh, for all the years during the King's Great Matter. And she held on when he really wanted this annulment. So why do you think she was so firm, even while she was being, I mean, really harshly punished? She was sent away. She wasn't allowed to see her daughter. Was it because she was really just in love with him? Was it because she believed, um, you know, her faith had to keep her there? What was what do you think her reasoning was for not just granting him? I think there were a lot. There was what we were talking about before with it might have seemed marginally ridiculous to her that, hey, Henry, we have Mary. Mary's fine. She can be queen. There's nothing that says that she can't be queen, but that wasn't good enough. And also with her marriage to Henry. So back when their marriage was being negotiated in 1503, there was a papal dispensation granted by, I think it was Julius II, who was the Pope at the time that said something along the lines of, even though Arthur and Catherine's marriage was conducted, the ceremony and consummation were conducted according to the Catholic rite that she was free to marry Henry. Like she had never been married before, basically, or she was free to marry him because it was potentially a violation of canon law for a woman to marry the brother of her husband. And so with that papal dispensation, which was under ecclesiastical law, spiritually speaking, and spiritual law was serious back then. This is not, there's, it was just as important to people, especially devout people as regular secular law. And so for Catherine to have that dispensation, which is effectively a command from God, I suppose you could say, because if the Pope is the representative on God, of God on earth, then the Pope speaks for God, saying, yeah, this is a totally valid marriage, it's fine, for Henry to come and say, mm, sorry, Pope and God, I think you're wrong, that's really disconcerting. But going back to whether it's a religious issue or what could have caused her to do that, I think there's a bit of logic to it, too, because it's not just religion, it's also hey, I know that everything was made right. It's been right for these many years. Why is this suddenly a problem? And so I think that her obstinacy, and excuse me, also we were talking about earlier what happened to her poor sister, Juana, who was queen of Spain but was locked up in a monastery. And so I think we have, we can kind of boil it down to maybe three factors just to keep it simple. First of all, there was no reason for Mary to not be able to inherit the throne of England. It was just Henry's own weird anxiety. Well, I shouldn't say weird, but it was Henry's own anxiety over the situation of not having a specifically male heir. Secondly, canon law, under canon law and from the papal dispensation, their marriage was completely valid, so they didn't need to do anything else. It was fine. And thirdly, she was probably afraid of having the same thing happen to her or her daughter Mary that happened to her sister Juana. Thank you. Um, I think that's really helpful. And I think that I never really thought of it that way when you put it in the context of that he was saying, no, no, the Pope is wrong and I'm right. You know, that's a big step to say that. Uh All right, Heather. So I can't let you get away without one last question. I don't technically have this question written down from any of our listeners, but you know, I'm going to ask you, did they, or didn't they? That is always the question. So um, to an extent, to an extent, it doesn't matter because of the papal dispensation, but these are the things we do know. So they're in that dispensation that we've been talking about. And like I mentioned before, it does specifically say that they consummated the marriage according to the Catholic rite. It also says, or excuse me, there's also a letter from a Spanish official back to Ferdinand and Isabella after Catherine arrives in England that 
Catherine was originally supposed to go with Henry VII and Elizabeth of York and live with them for two years while Arthur went to Wales, but then ultimately they decided to just let her go with Arthur to Wales, and we don't know what happened. But anyway, so we don't know if they if they had actual sex or not while they were in Wales. We don't know if perhaps they consummated it by consummated ceremonially or symbolically. So what I mean by that is I think about Wilhelm of Cleves, Anna of Cleves' brother. His first bride was 12-year-old Jeanne d'Albray, and she was too young to have a penetrative encounter with anyone, and so the marriage between Wilhelm and Jeanne was symbolically consummated, and what happened was they went to her bedchamber, she got into her bedclothes, and her parents were in the room, as were other court officials, and then Wilhelm uh, stripped the hose off his right leg and took off his right boot and his right sock, or I guess hose and socks are the same thing, but his his leg and foot were, were bare, and then he placed his foot in the bed with Jean d'Albray, and that symbolically consummated the marriage. So they never had actual sex, but him putting his bare foot in her bed was enough. In other instances, we see grooms with underage brides or representatives of the groom consummating the marriage symbolically with the bride where they might lie in bed next to her and touch their naked leg to her body. And she's clothed in her bedclothes or whatever it is that she's wearing, so she's not naked at all, but they touch a naked part of their leg to the bride's body and it's considered consummated. So they're not actually having what we think of as traditional sex, I guess you could say, but the marriage is still consummated. So what we don't know is if that comment in the papal dispensation was just a throwaway comment, if it means that, yes, they did, have penetrative sex, or if they had a symbolic consummation of the marriage. I had no idea that consummating a marriage could mean more than one thing. Mm-hmm. So thank you for the leg explanation. Le- yeah. Well, and it's and it wasn't that strange for that to happen because I think depending on the culture, a girl had to be 14 or 15 before she was allowed to live with her husband because it was considered unsafe for a girl younger than that to become pregnant. So thinking back to Henry VII's mother, Margaret Beaufort, the fact that she became pregnant in 12, at 12 and gave birth at 13 is not only horrifying to people now, but would have been horrifying or at least really, really poorly thought of back then too. And boys had to be, I think it was 15 or 16 before they were allowed to live with their Bride. So when right. Arthur married Catherine, he might have actually only been 14 when they first got married, but I'd have to double check that, um, which would have made him underage, which is part of the reason why they were supposed to wait two years after her arrival for them to have penetrative sex, shall we say. Um, so that's why, again, I, I don't know and will never know if they did actually do that. Um, we don't know how well guarded they were, separated they were from each other when they were in Wales. And we don't know if they only had a symbolic consummation of their marriage. It's so interesting. It's so interesting. Thank mm. you so much for joining us, Heather. It was a really fun chat. And thank you to all of our listeners who wrote in and asked us questions. Uh, we're always happy to hear from you. So, Heather, I know that you have two books that we're going to talk about real quick. So let us know where can we find these books? What are they called? Let us know how to find you on social media. Yeah, so my first book, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister, which I researched and wrote from the German perspective. I am a German speaker. I also speak some Spanish and French, but most importantly for Anna, I speak German, she is released as a hardback and on November 15th in the UK, and I believe in the EU, it's being released as a paperback. And then 
in the U.S. it will be released as a paperback on February 15th, so you know what to get your loved ones for the holidays and for Valentine's Day or Galentine's Day, whichever one you you celebrate. And then my second book, Children of the House of Cleves, Anna and Her Siblings, is set for release in late 2021 to early 2022. The timing somewhat depends on what happens with the pandemic, unfortunately, but it is coming. I just don't know exactly when. In the meantime, you can go to my website of maidensandmanuscripts.com, and if you're interested in more about Catherine and her family, I think there are at least three articles. No, actually, I think there's four. There's one about Catherine's first meeting with Arthur that I recently put up. There's one about her mother, Isabella, being an usurper of the thrones of Castile and Leon, and then there is one about what... The, the multiple different types of religious communities that were living together in Spain side by side. And I think there's one specifically about Juana and her alleged madness. If you'd like to find me on Twitter, I am at HR Darcy history. I'm also on Instagram as at H Darcy history. So Twitter, it's HR Darcy history, Instagram, it's H Darcy history. And now a brief history. Bess of Hardwick is one of those provocative characters from history that elicit emotion. Was she a ruthless social climber or a shrewd businesswoman? Did she feel genuine love for her husbands, or was she using them to improve her standing? She had many enemies, yet somehow achieved genuinely loving marriages with each of her husbands, including the last right up until the unexpected arrival of a somewhat unwanted houseguest. Her reputation as a strict, bossy, belligerent old woman has become widely accepted, yet one can't help but wonder if her astute instinct for personal and financial growth is simply cause for jealousy on the parts of those who were both her contemporaries and examiners. Elizabeth Hardwick was born somewhere between 1521 and 1527 to John Hardwick of Derbyshire and his wife Elizabeth. John died in 1527, and most of his modestly prosperous estate went to the crown until his son would come of age. As she was not necessarily from a privileged upbringing, Bess's ambition began to develop as young as 16, believing that a strategic marriage would be beneficial to her status. She married Robert Barlow, who passed quickly, widowing the young lady by 1544. Bess fought for and won her husband's assets, and she moved on to live as lady-in-waiting to Frances Gray in her household, where she ultimately met her second husband, William Cavendish. Cavendish was a treasurer of Henry VIII's chamber and one of Thomas Cromwell's allies during the dissolution of the monasteries. During the early years of their marriage, Bess convinced him to sell the former monastic lands he had amassed and move back to her home county. In 1549, they purchased Chatsworth Manor for 600 pounds and began building the first house in 1552. This estate was to be rebuilt and furnished extravagantly. The couple were equally ambitious and together worked to increase their wealth and standing throughout their relationship. And yet, all Derbyshire properties they shared were in both of their names. This unusual effort proved both Cavendish's faith in his wife as well as her intuition on the possibility of her estates going to the crown if he died before their heirs were of age to inherit them. Their happy, stable marriage of 10 years produced eight children, six of whom survived to adulthood. Unfortunately, William Cavendish died in 1557 and left Bess a wealthy widow. She made the decision to enter into a third prosperous marriage with captain of the Yeoman Guards, William St. Lowe. It was during this marriage 
that the drama surrounding Bess would start taking effect, and her story really begins. During the time when Bess was in the household of Frances Gray, she became close to the family and their three daughters. When their second daughter, Lady Catherine Gray, secretly married Edward Somerset, first Earl of Hertford, without permission from the Queen, and was eight months pregnant with his child, Catherine confided in Bess, confessing her situation and pleading for her help to cajole the Queen into being accepting of the situation. Irate and embarrassed, Beth would not hear any of it, as she was not interested in being an accomplice of such deceit. Catherine's claim to the throne was strong enough that Elizabeth was wary of her and any heir she may have, and Bess knew that there would be no leniency in a situation such as this. Yet, Bess's avoidance and confession to Queen Elizabeth held no weight, as she was convinced that Beth was collaborating with Catherine to replace her. Both Catherine and Bess were imprisoned in the tower. Unlike Catherine, Beth was ultimately released, yet still removed from her position at court. In 1565, William St. Lowe died unexpectedly, due to what many believe was poisoning by his brother. As the theory goes, St. Lowe's brother wanted his fortune, yet unbeknownst to him, everything was left to Bess anyway. She once again came out on top and continued to amass her fortune. By this time, she could have lived quite comfortably on her own, yet she chose to wed for a fourth time, as every husband she chose was wealthier than the last and continued to improve her fortune. In 1567, she married George Talbot, 6th Earl of Shrewsbury. In another unsurprising and calculated move to secure their wealth, Bess and George married Bess's daughter Mary Cavendish, to Gilbert Talbot, George's heir, and her eldest son to Talbot's daughter. Although the early stages of this marriage seemed to have been healthy, things took a turn for the worse in 1568 when Shrewsbury was appointed keeper of the Queen's rival, Mary Queen of Scots. When the uprising against her began in Scotland, she left her home country and was assigned to be protected and guarded by Shrewsbury in their home at Chatsworth. Queen Elizabeth knew that if not sufficiently guarded and watched, Mary was capable of taking her throne. Many in England still did want a Catholic monarch, so Beth earned back some of the favor she had lost after the Catherine Grey mishap by participating fully in the security and careful watch of Mary. She was a prisoner there various times throughout 1569 and 1584. Adding to the tumult of the times, during Mary's stay with the Talbots, Bess and Margaret Douglas, the Countess of Lennox, daughter of Margaret Tudor and Archibald Douglas, sought to have their children married. Not unlike her prior behavior of securing matches in line with her ambition, Bess married her daughter Elizabeth Cavendish to Douglas's son Charles Stuart, the brother of Mary Queen of Scots's second husband, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. Predictably, this greatly displeased Queen Elizabeth and sent Douglas to London while Bess and her daughter were placed under watch at Nottinghamshire. To make matters worse for the Queen, Elizabeth Cavendish was already pregnant with yet another rival to her position on the throne. This baby, born in 1575, was Arbella Stewart. After years of discontent due to the strain their house guests brought on the marriage, Bess and Shrewsbury split. He had become bitter and angry towards Bess, for going to court and visiting friends and family while he had to remain at Chatsworth and make sure that Mary, Queen of Scots, was under constant supervision. Contrarily, Bess started spreading rumors of Mary having been sleeping with her husband and potentially even bearing his children while under his care. It was at this time in 1584 that Mary wrote to Elizabeth, declaring that her custodian Beth made mention on numerous occasions that her queen was, quote, in no way a virgin, 
as she was famously known for being, and also somehow, quote, incapable of sex, as she is not like other women. Despite the commotion caused by the letter and the unwelcome marriage arranged by Bess, Queen Elizabeth still even tried to help the couple reconcile, but without success. Bess and Shrewsbury remained estranged as he claimed she, quote, tried to rule him and make him the wife and her the husband. By 1587, Bess was living completely separately from her husband and was already back home at her family manor house at Hardwick to renovate it. She began constructing around her old home, what is now known as Hardwick Old Hall. Then in 1590, Bess's estranged husband died, increasing her lands and wealth even further, expanding her affluence well beyond what any other woman at the time could even dream. Before the old hall was complete, and almost immediately after the death of her husband, foundations for Hardwick New Hall were being dug. This new building was rich and lavish-looking, with contemporary architecture for the time and windows reaching from the ground up. Turrets at the top displayed the initials E.S. for Elizabeth Shrewsbury. The new construction gave rise to the often quoted description, Hardwick Hall, more glass than wall. All the while, since the death of Bess's daughter in 1582, she was raising her granddaughter Arbella and grooming her to potentially succeed Elizabeth I. Feeling suffocated by her overbearing and determined grandmother, Arbella wanted to make a marriage match of her own choosing, rather than one of her grandmother's. She married William Seymour, the grandson of Edward Seymour, 1st Earl of Hartford, whom Queen Elizabeth already hated after the previously mentioned Catherine Grey scandal. Elizabeth assumed this was purposeful and meant to threaten her position on the throne. So once again, Bess and Elizabeth were at odds. And once again, Bess had to prove her loyalty to the crown by convincing her that she had no knowledge of her granddaughter's secret marriage. To demonstrate her unwavering devotion to Elizabeth, Bess disinherited Arbella from her will. Elizabeth Shrewsbury died in 1608 and was buried in a tomb in Derby Cathedral. Her ambition motivated every choice she made in life, and she died as one of the wealthiest women in England, second only to Queen Elizabeth herself. No matter how many bridges she burned along the way, Bess of Hardwick had an unparalleled sense of determination and drive, worthy of all the success that was afforded to her throughout her life. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. You can find my show notes from this episode and how to become a patron at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. Don't want to miss an episode? Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Patreon, Podbean, or anywhere you can find podcasts. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.